because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's show, I'm going to be discussing the net zero corporate movement, and I'm very happy to have on the show Rupert Darwall. Rupert is one of my favorite writers on energy and environmental issues. He wrote the books, The Age of Global Warming and Green Tyranny. He's a great researcher, particularly a historical researcher, so he brings a lot of historical perspective to a lot of different issues that you'll see will be very beneficial today. And he's been doing some really good work lately on the net zero movement, specifically the net zero corporate movement. So I'm excited to have him on. I actually am recording this after having had him on. So I can tell you there's a really good discussion that follows. I hope you enjoy it. And I will be back on the other side with a few more thoughts. I'm joined now by Rupert Darwall. Rupert, welcome to Power Hour. Glad to be joining you, Alex. So just a little bit about your background first. So you have these two impressive books, The Age of Global Warming and Green Tyranny. One thing that strikes me about them is they're just very well researched and you really seem to be immersed. I mean, you are immersed in just the history of the thinking and the policies that brought us toward today. How did you first get interested in energy and environmental issues? Well, Alex, actually it was completely by accident and it was through someone um, someone I, uh, who was, uh, he was a, a very great economist and he did a series of lectures shortly after I left Cambridge where I st studied economics. And I heard uh, David Henderson uh, do deliver these lectures on, on BBC radio. And I thought, gosh, here is a, an economist who talks common sense. And then years later, I happened to meet him at a think tank lunch and, he had this wonderful ability to wind one up. And he said, you don't believe in the triple bo bottom line. You don't believe in green growth. I said, David, what are you telling me? Why are you telling me you're the guy who sort of rubbished all this? And he kind of wound me up so much that uh, it kind of, it, I thought I had to write a book about it. Almost Wait, did to, he, to, did he a, believe in that himself? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. He's, he, he was a very big critic. He was an OECD economist, chief economist of the OECD. He worked at the World, World Bank. He worked in advising the British government in the 1960s. I mean, he was he, he was phenomenal. And he was a big critic of, of corporate social responsibilities, as it was then mm -hmm. and is now ESG. And it was through that, that he got into the whole issue of global warming. And in fact, he, came, he had a run-in with the IPCC about how they were looking at the at their uh, scenarios and that they were they were using market exchange rates, not PPP, purchasing power parities, and actually he was denounced by the IPCC. And so it's a way of, it was a brilliant way of kind of working me up. And he'd, he'd studied this, he sort of observed it a lot. And so I embarked on this book and I got a lot of, I mean, you're right, say immersed, because actually I, I kind of downloaded from him. And so that's how this, I think it's really important to go into the prehistory of global warming because what's happened with global warming, there was a pre-existing ideology, uh, a set of beliefs, and there was the United Nations Environment Programme and, and so forth. And so you have to look, you have to look before global warming started as, as politics, before 1988, when, when it effectively started, and, and look at the prehistory of it. So that's what I did in my in my first book. In the second book. I looked more at the the continental European dimension, and in particular Sweden, the role of Sweden 
because Sweden was incredibly important in kicking this all off and it hosted the first World Environment Con uh, Conference, UN Conference on the Environment in 1972. And it started the acid rain. That's when acid rain became a big issue. And then a bit later, the Swedes started with um, global warming. And then the German dimension, because the greening of Europe reflects the greening of Germany, which happened um, after unification. And well, the Greens was founded in 1980. And the greening of Germany has led to the greening of Europe with very, very big consequences for, for Europe and indeed the world, I think. Yeah, so the greening politically, not not physically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Politically, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the ideological greening. Yeah. Got it. Well, the the topic I want to discuss today is inspired by what I've been studying, but also you had this great paper for the Global Warming Policy Foundation. I think it's called the Climate Noose. And you talk about corporations push toward these net zero targets. And so my tentative title for our episode is the unscientific and suicidal corporate net zero movement, which I think captures a lot of what you discussed. But I want to start out by discussing an example of how destructive it is to try to get to net zero, which is the reality of where you're from, uh, the UK. I think in the US, we've had a little bit of a taste of what green energy really means by learning about what's been happening in California, where I live. But in general, yeah. I think we're woefully undereducated as to the actual results of green energy around the world. So tell us a little bit about what the UK has done over the past 12, 14 years in terms of trying to reduce emissions through green energy and then what has actually happened. I think there are two two things. One is kind of on the policy and the other is on the politics. On the policy, essentially what's happened is that the UK power system has reduced uh, carbon dioxide emissions by, by, by two things. First of all, there's been a huge expansion of renewable energy, which has seen a big increase in energy prices. And one of the things the UK government did was to abolish, well, to change the definition of fuel poverty because fuel poverty was going to be driven, the measure of fuel poverty was going to be driven by rising energy prices. So what they did was change the definition of energy, energy poverty. And the other thing is the sort of institutional framework around that. And in particular, in 2008, the British Parliament passed the Climate Change Act, and that created the Climate Change Committee, which its job is to hold, if you can believe it, the government, the democratically elected government, to account for reaching, uh, for, for delivering various carbon dioxide emission reduction targets. So there are five yearly, what they call carbon budgets, which are really um, targets, rolling a, a five-year five -year target. And initially, the target was an 80% reduction in CO2 greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And last year, that was up to net zero. And so what you have is, a, is a, a framework that forces the government into the government of the day. Any government you elected has to do the same thing, um, which forces you into a path of decarbonisation, irrespective of the costs. There is no kind of get out clause for saying this is actually too expensive. There's no get out clause for saying, well, actually, the rest of the world isn't do doing it. You have to do it. And the irony is, Alex, that Britain is part or until Brexit was part of the European Union's emission trading scheme. So the faster that Britain decarbonised, the more it would release uh, carbon emissions permits 
for other people, for other countries in Europe. Okay, so the net effect on the climate and, and on CO2 emissions, all it meant was Britain sacrificed more so that Italians and Spanish or whatever could emit more. I mean, completely crazy. And these kind of, I think these, um, these aspects of climate policy are kind of not well understood because you see a lot of states in the US saying, oh, we're going to have emissions trading. And all they're doing, if you, if you set a tighter target, you're just letting someone else emit more. You don't actually reduce the carbon emissions if you think that's a desirable thing. But I think it's what we've seen so far, if you like, is the easier bit of emissions reduction, which is actually like the US, which has been a switch from uh, coal coal-fired uh, power stations to natural gas. So what, we, what we've had in the UK is coal has really gone down to next to nothing. And coal's only brought on when the wind, when the wind isn't blowing, they fire up the coal-fired power stations to keep the lights on. So that's where we're at at the moment. But there will come a, par, a point where we're past that and there aren't any coal-fired power stations left. Uh, there aren't incentives to build gas-fired power stations because renewables have this little understood effect on the, the economics of power generation, which is because they're basically fixed cost, wind and solar are very high fixed cost, very low marginal cost, which destroys the economics of dispatchable, reliable generating capacity. So unless the government steps in and invests in that kind of capacity, the lights go out. And we're not quite yet there yet, but, as, but in a matter of years, we will be, and the lights will go out. And at that point, all bets are off. Let's talk though about, you mentioned price increases, which I think are very underrated in terms of how significant they are. As, as I talk about the price of energy affects the price of everything. So you mentioned cost increases. What's, what scale of cost increases have you seen in the UK? You've seen, you've seen uh, it depends which year, which year you take, but you've seen a very, uh, you've seen prices going up by, by 50%. Um, at the same time, so at the same time, wholesale prices, you have to be quite careful here because the effect of renewables is 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 actually rather odd. It kind of because because they 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 depress wholesale prices at the same time as retail prices go up. So there there is a strange effect of uh, of renewables on the economics of the grid. But the other thing, Alex, to take take into account is what we've had in Britain is basically this has accelerated the deindustrialization of and the offshore offshoring of British manufacturing, because British British manufacturers now have the highest electricity prices virtually anywhere in the world. Because whereas the Ger Germans who were ahead of this, they basically cross subsidised um, their so business basically pays less because so that households pay more. So there's that effect in Germany. But Britain manufacturers are basically being slaughtered by the energy price increases. So Britain has the highest per capita amount of imported carbon dioxide emissions, and, you know, in terms of manufactured imports. So that's another thing that, you know, kind of the, the, the climate crowd don't take into account, but actually Britain's consumption emissions are a hell of a lot higher than production emissions. Yeah, I think this is a really crucial point that just industry is one of the first things to disappear when your energy costs go up because people domestically, I mean, they're going to use some energy no matter what, and the rich people can afford quite a bit. I mean, they'll still use a lot of energy if energy prices go up, but industry will generally flee. I mean, if they think for the foreseeable future, it's going to be super expensive to produce anything with electricity in the UK, they're going to leave the UK. Is there documentation on, on the level of flight that there's been? On the level of a flight of like industri of industry flight. leaving I, the I UK, think, yeah, the the um, 
it's not so much industry leaving, it's industry not reinvesting and just it's a steady shrinkage. But I think the most compelling, uh, the most compelling uh, data is on is the gap between um, consumption emissions and production emissions. So Britain's production emissions have been falling, but the production, the sorry, the consumption emissions are basically haven't fallen. They haven't fallen. They have fallen, but they they were they peaked and and now they're back to the level they were in 1992. So you could say Britain Britain has the worst decarbonisation record of any industrialised economy because essentially its its consumption emissions haven't they've gone up and down, but they're back to where they were in 1992 around that date. Um, but that that to my mind is the most telling thing is just the deindustrialization through outsourcing emissions to China and so forth. Yeah, I think this is a generally completely understated phenomenon. I mean, even in the US, if you look at like, what would our electricity consu consumption from industry look like if we had not had all of these renewable mandates? And if you look at China's industrial electricity consumption, the trajectory of that versus ours, I think ours is pretty close to flat. And theirs is really, I mean, obviously increasing very, very rapidly. If you think yeah. about the future of a nation, you don't want flat or declining industrial energy consumption. If you, if you want to have blue collar jobs, you, if you want blue collar jobs, you want rising electricity consumption. Absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is kind of, we're going into Joel Kotkin territory with, uh, of, of basically the hollowing out of, of, of blue collar, the blue collar stratum in society. And it's, it's got profound economic and social um, implications. Well, I mean, also, if you just look even for data, I mean, what's going to, you know, yeah. if it's sustained more expensive or less reliable electricity, I mean, the more and more we have things, consu energy consumed by data centers, the more there's an incentive to offshore uh, a lot of those to places that are actually, yeah. that actually have cheap uh, electricity. So uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up about the UK that I think people aren't to told about, you mentioned that the fuel poverty definition had changed. So I'd like you to talk about that and, and particularly talk about that in connection with cold weather related deaths. Cause I don't, people think, oh, the warming is such a problem, but cold weather related deaths are a bigger problem. And I know it's a big issue in the UK as energy prices increase. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge issue. And I mean, Britain, what's extraordinary, and we talked earlier about the institutional framework of um, decarbonisation, but Britain has, no British government has carried out a cost-benefit analysis of climate change. And it's quite possible to believe that a country with the climate of Britain would actually be a beneficiary from mild warming. I mean, what... It's, yeah, I would say it's, know, it's more quite, than, way more, it's more than, than possible. Likely. And, but you're absolutely right to, to mention uh, cold weather deaths. That's, a, that's tens of thousands of, of elder, principally elderly people uh, can be, you know, lose their lives because they're not the, over, the, over the winter months. But it's also the sheer misery that it in, in, inflicts on, you know, living in cold, damp, quite old housing stock. It, um, but what happened, it was in David Cameron's coalition government from, from about 20, 2010, which started in 2010, when they had a big push on climate. And they realized that uh, climate policies were going to push up electricity prices. And there'd been um, a previous government had promised to abolish 
energy poverty. So they thought, how can we get rid of this? Uh, we, we've got this problem. There's this thing about abolishing energy poverty. So the obvious thing is you change the definition of energy poverty. And it was about, instead of being it about people, they defined it around buildings and the extent to which a building, a, a, a house or an apartment or whatever, could be insulated. And that, so they just shifted, they just shifted. You weren't actually measuring poverty as it affects people, but poverty as it affects a, a affects building and so this was this it was claimed was more policy relevant because the idea was that uh, you cut emissions by insulating buildings so so that's what they did and then from from that moment on they kind of uh, they, they stopped the increase in in energy poverty i mean it was, if it was any other field but climate change you can imagine the political outrage there would be the government fid fiddling fiddling the numbers you know if it was unemployment or health care or anything like that it would be all over the papers but there was there's been hardly a, a word no protest about it at all i mean among better researchers what has been documented in terms of cold weather deaths and cold weather misery as energy prices have gone up oh, there, there there are numbers of there are numbers on that. I think it, particularly in the current environment, it's a very, you know, with COVID and so forth, it's kind of, it's it's really back of mind. I mean, that that's not, you know, by the nature of, of, of the pandemic and the excess deaths and so forth, you're not seeing, it's just everything's overwhelmed by COVID. So you're not for the next, you know, we've had COVID now for, for nine months and we'll have it for at least another four or five months. So it's kind of, it's very much back of mind. But there, it's a, it's not the story, even in a normal year, it's not the story you'd expect, because if you do things, if it's about climate, climate sort of trumps everything. It's It, it just sacrifices everything uh, because the, saving the planet is the most important thing. Just one more thing on that. I mean, shouldn't it be relevant in COVID times? I mean, we see, you know, during cold and flu season, COVID is, spreads a lot worse. And so you would think that people's ability to be warm and comfortable would affect the spread and severity of COVID. Yeah, you would. And also the, the public health uh, advice is to keep windows open, isn't it? So it runs completely against, it well, runs completely against uh, public health, public health and the decarbonisation run completely counter to each other. So you should actually be turning up the heat in, in your homes and you should, you should be having a, you, you should be opening the windows to let them, but it's really expensive to do that. And it's, it's a cold winter. Been quite cold recently, so it's not pleasant. Yeah, I mean that that this is. I wish maybe there's a good resource on this, but I've I've thought a lot about how the reality of COVID has just refuted all of these green myths, or or maybe more accurately, has shown a lot of these green practices to be self-destructive. So if you think about over you know over commitment to energy efficiency at the expense of ventilation and ventilation yeah. is a key issue. Or you think about, yeah, what's the thing we should really be doing is a massive increase in temperature control and opening the windows. So I'm, I'm proud to say I live in a very modest climate or moderate climate, but you know, I ran air conditioning and opened the windows during the summer and I run heat and it, we don't really have much of a winter, but I run heat and open the windows during the colder times. And I would no matter, and I, I'm willing to spend the money on that because it's, that's the valuable thing for health. And nobody's saying, hey, yeah, you know what? If we increased our carbon footprint in heating and air conditioning, we could really save a lot of lives. Like nobody's talking about that's obvious from the science of it. Well, the other, you're absolutely right. The other thing is, is mass transit and 
the auto. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, that's that's a big one. The also the Greens want very dense cities because whereas public health, you know, you want actually cities spread out and the suburbs are good. You know, so there is a big there is a big tension. There's a big contradiction between public health and decarbonisation. Absolutely right. This is a big big topic which the progressives haven't got their heads around yet. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, the hand dryers, you're seeing those go out of style, the, you know, the, um, the grocery bags, you know, the green grocery bags that are bacteria traps, it's just like, but there wasn't any admission that, hey, we've been encouraging you to do something unhealthy, which a lot of us on the pro-human side had been saying for years, hey, yeah. these are anti-human yeah. measures. But let's, let's jump in now to uh, this corporate movement to net zero. And one thing I really enjoyed about your paper is that you talk about the origins of net zero, logical or pseudo-logical, including this 1.5 degree uh, Celsius target. Because I think most people think of it as, oh, this is a scientifically determined number. Uh, the UN found out that if we don't limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which by the way, it means 0.5 from where we are now, because we've already hit one yeah. from pre-industrial levels. So if, if it warms half a degree, the world is going to end. And you know the AOC comment, and you're worried about yeah. The cost. So, what's the actual origin of this number that I would say, uncharitably, the uh, business world has just completely uh, capitulated to and not questioned? Like, where where does this come from? This one point. I don't think that's not Alex. I I would wouldn't say that's an unfair comment at all about capitulation. They have completely capitulated, and they haven't looked. They haven't raised the hood and looked looked under what what's there. The, the 1.5, before 1.5, it was two degrees. And the two degrees above pre-industrial levels, which is actually the giveaway, isn't it? Because what have pre-industrial levels got to do with anything? I mean, we don't even know what they really are. The baseline for all this is actually very difficult to determine. And it came about because European environment ministers decided, oh, two degrees above pre-industrial levels is the right uh, the right thing. The, the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, has this thing about to avoid dangerous anthropogenic change. So we, we should go back there. So then what happened was that European environment ministers had to say, well, what is what is dangerous anthropogenic climate change? And they decided two degrees above pre-industrial levels, right? There's no scientific basis to that at all. That is what the environment ministers decided. Then there was a campaign um, launched by the, the Alliance of Small uh, Island States to say two degrees is too much, our islands are drowning. And if you remember before the Copenhagen Climate Conference in 2009, um, the president of the Maldives held a, he put on some scuba kit and he held a cabinet minute meeting. You remember all that hoo-ha? And it was all a push for 1.5 degrees. Copenhagen uh, was a disaster because the Indians and the Chinese and Brazilians and South Africans said, no, we're not going to sign up to this. And But they kept on going with this PR campaign and they it got written into the Paris Agreement in 2015. I remember being at the Paris conference. And if you ever go to these climate change, the UN climate change things, they're basically a huge, great trade fair of the climate industrial complex. So you have these pavilions and of countries and and, in, and companies or whatever. And I remember seeing there was a little pro, uh, d fake demonstration and Todd Stern, the US negotiator, was in it. And they were all chanting sort of one, 
uh, 1.5 to stay alive and whatever. I mean, just complete rubbish. And so it got written into the text. So then having the politicians, if you like, and the NGOs and whatever, having written it into the text, it, it, it then the IPCC was asked to justify what had already been decided by politics. Now, this whole thing of small island states, small islands, coral atolls disappearing under the waves. I was always suspicious of this because some time ago, I read Charles Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle. And if you haven't read it, I strongly recommend that you do. because It's one of the greatest works of scientific mind. And it's also not in equations or algebra or, or anything. It's in, written in plain English. It's the most incredible book. And he, during, as they went through, as, as the Beagle sailed through the Pacific Islands, um, in the Indian Ocean, Darwin asked himself, how is it coral atolls are formed? And he hypothesized they're formed by the slow subsidence of the seabed. So it's actually, if you like, rising sea levels that help create coral atolls. And modern science has confirmed Darwin's intuition that that is how coral atolls are, are formed. And lo and behold, what we find is that most coral atolls have been, have been growing in size. So the whole thing about 1.5, which was based on coral atolls being submerged by, by rising uh, seas, is it's, it's fake science. It's completely untrue. It's without foundation. Yet the whole world has followed, has swallowed this unscientific, anti-scientific belief. And that's what it's been, you know, we've been basically sunk, if you like, by a really brilliant PR campaign that has no scientific basis to it whatsoever. That's how we got here. So let's let's dive in to a couple of things. So one thing is, I mean, so with this coral atoll thing, if you think about the Maldives and some other places, which by the way, I mean, Maldives is like, you know, vacation. People are going scuba diving there, but just because it's a great vacation spot, still. But if you just think about logically, okay, even if there were a concern about certain very small island nations will be overwhelmed in fifty years or whatever it is, you would think that you would you would ask, well, what's the cost of preventing that? Like, what's the cost of, if it were even true? And one thing you pointed out about the 1.5 degree report, which came out, I believe, in 2018, is that there's no serious consideration of the costs of climate policy. And I, 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 was, I couldn't even believe it was this bad, but I looked into it. So I read through the entire, not the whole report, but I read through the entire summary by policymakers or for policymakers, and I didn't see even one reference to the cost of these climate policies, like to the actual, and they're talking about eliminating net emissions by 2050. Could you comment on just the lack of a cost benefit analysis at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it is absolute, it, it is staggering that there is no cost benefit analysis whatsoever, but it's, it's not surprising because if there was a cost benefit analysis, it would show that the thing's not worth doing. And you wouldn't have 1.5, you wouldn't have two degrees either. There were some indicative numbers of, the, of if you like, shadow carbon prices, and they are really eye-popping. So for 2030, the cost of, you, you need a carbon tax to reach 1.5 of up to $6,050 a, a tonne. You know, people people complain about carbon taxes of fifty or hundred dollars a ton, but you're talking about an order of magnitude higher than that, six thousand and fifty. So how, do, how does that translate? So, like, is it? I forget what it is. So how does that translate to like a gallon of gasoline? 
I, I haven't, Alex, I haven't, I haven't worked that out. I mean, it's, I haven't worked that out. But to compare, if you look at the, if the Clinton administration mm-hmm. did a social cost of carbon exercise to justify the clean power plan. And when you, when you put, it came out about $50 a tonne. And when you um, put them on the same basis as the estimates in the IPCC for the carbon tax, it's equivalent to $94 a tonne. And so you're really comparing $94 a tonne of, and that's an estimate of the damages uh, from from the marginal tonne of carbon dioxide, compared to taxing it up to $6,050 a tonne, shows you how this is an absolutely crazy, irrational, anti-human, anti-human welfare policy. I mean, when you look at when you stand by, this is something done by fanatics. It's not by people who are concerned about human welfare, because those numbers should give anyone pause for thought. They they show a, a destruction of human welfare on an absolutely extraordinary scale. Now, does the UN use those numbers? Yeah, that's from the IPCC report. Oh, special, I didn't, I, this, oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's it says not formally. It's not formally. It's not formally a cost-benefit analysis. But they, those numbers are. Um, you'll find those numbers in the report. It's also in my report, and um, that should give anyone pause for thought about the rights and wrongs of embarking on this course, because it really will make the destruction. As I say, the destruction of welfare is absolutely colossal, mind-boggling. Yeah, so you mentioned fanatics, and it definitely has this religious quality to it, where it's saying we need to reach this number without any regard to the consequences of reaching this number. So the idea is the number is an end in itself. And you might think, well, how is that, like, where is that coming from? And I think some of the quotes you have in this report from them reveal the religious uh, character. So I just want to read a couple of them uh, that you had, let's see. So one is, um, maybe here, here are the two that I found most revealing. One is the overarching context of this report is this, human influence has become a principal agent of change on the planet. And so to me, that just smacks of, this is the whole green morality of thou shalt not impact the planet. Like to them, the whole context is we're having a lot of impact and they're not differentiating between positive and negative impact even though our overall impact on the planet has been amazingly positive. That's why we have dramatically increased life expectancy, dramatically increased income and dramatically increased population. And then the other thing that confirms that they're not concerned with human life. And I could not believe this. So I had to read the report just to confirm you weren't misquoting them is the summary, their summary, their entire summary of the positives of industrial civilization or fossil fuel civilization. So here's what it says. Global economic growth has been accompanied by increased life expectancy and income in much of the world. However, in addition to environmental degradation and pollution, many regions remain characterized by significant poverty and severe inequality uh, in income distribution and access to resources, amplifying vulnerability to climate change. So I just want to put it in context. The world has had unprecedented improvement for the last 200 years. I mean, life expectancy has gone from 30 to over 70. Your opportunity to live a fulfilling life is completely unimaginable to somebody who lived 100, let alone 200 years ago. The world, and their whole thing is 
has been accompanied by increased life expectancy and income, and they can't even give that one sentence. They have a semicolon. However, in addition to environmental degradation and pollution, many regions remain characterized by significant poverty, which as you point out, is because they haven't industrialized. So if, if this is your characterization of industrial life, you are not thinking about it in a pro-human way. What's, what's your take? I've read a lot of IPCC reports, and this one, is overtly ideological. I mean, it is ideology. This is, this is it's, it's using science, it doesn't even, but it doesn't hide its ideological um, purpose. And it talked about 1.5 as creating the um, opportunity for intentional societal transformation. Now that is an ideological project. And as you point out, the anti-capitalist, anti-industrialization bias is so strong, they don't hide it. And what I find most unsettling is that we call them policymakers, but it's governments around the world have accepted this completely uncritically. They, they, they just, oh, the science says, the science says that we've got to do it. And the science of, of the 1.5 report, and I'm, sort of slight, I'm not really traducing it at all, is basically saying um, that the, the physical consequences of, of one of 1.5 are less than going to, to two degrees. Yeah, that, that is, is basically what it amounts to. That, that, that's all it is. You don't need a bunch of scientists to tell you. As I say, a child could have told them that. That's all it is. That is the sort of, in the, that's the bottom line scientific content of the 1.5 report. But the rest of it, it's, it's ideological. Now, in terms of the Paris Agreement, which has come in for a lot of criticism, and I'm very critical of it, there is a get-out clause that everyone's forgotten, which is, I'll read it out to you, recognising that parties may be affected not only by climate change, but also by the impacts of the measures taken in response to it. Now, that is that is just the, that is the most important, you know, a breath of fresh air and otherwise a completely insane uh, framework. Because the, these policies are going to be far more destructive than anything brought about by climate change. And, and not just destructive on human welfare, but on the environment. You know, if you go and we, we've seen the uh, palm oil um, plantations and the destruction of, of, of habitats, wind and solar and just how they destruction of habitats there and just... And so we're going to see we're going to see huge environmental degradation. You know, from well, you know, from a battery manufacture. I mean, all the the rare earths and stuff, the, the cobalt mining there'll be in Africa and so forth. It's going to be horrendous. And so the world is is on this course, which is both destructive of human welfare and also the the environment. And there's no there's nothing at the moment. There's no one sort of putting their hand up saying, look, hey. Let's let's look at this and look look at the origins of this and where where it came from, and it came from a deeply ideological report produced by the IPCC. So we have an anti-human, anti-industry, like religion or ideology or philosophy producing this report. Now let's talk about the response of the of particularly industrial companies. What has their response been? At least public companies with this. ESG movement? Well, I, I think one has to distinguish between industrial companies and Wall Street, if you like, uh, because Wall Street is it's very easy for Wall Street to decarbonize because 
their production emissions are tiny and their energy costs as a percent of their income statement are you know fractions of a percentage uh, of a percentage point so it's very easy for them to be climate virtuous although having said that if you look at consumption emissions of a wall street banker they're going to be they're going to be stratospheric but everyone looks at production well, what about emissions. what they're funding i mean they're funding i mean they're giving the fuel for i mean all of industry is funded by finance so they yeah you could just so account the, it's all how you account for it yeah but what they but but, but so what they're doing is they're, they're they're saying well the 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 greening of finance the weaponization of finance uh so industrial companies are ba be basically being given notice by wall street you have got to adopt net zero targets otherwise your access to capital is going to be curtailed otherwise we're going to the next proxy season we're going to vote against your board of directors and so forth so you've got this if you like this parallel form of government out of wall street uh regulating the activities of american corporations and that i think raises two profound issues the first is just to do with democratic democratic legitimacy you either have is do you have a have governments that are democratically accountable or is it done or is government should government be um run from wall street by unaccountable wall street titans and index fund managers such as blackrock vanguard state street and so forth the other one and this is just a practical one is that climate policy is made by nation states i mean it's, it's the jurisdiction of states and corporations are not their their activities are not coterminous with a state they're multinationals so if you're if you're regulating a, a large american corporation's carbon footprint it's scope one two three emissions those those are all around the world and effectively you're saying in parts of the world which aren't subject to strict uh climate policy you're effectively pushing them out of those territories out of those markets so it's a way of of shrinking the unintended effect is that you will see american corporations being pushed out of some of the fastest growing markets in the world that is the you know that that's if if they stick to if they stick to net zero and all that have what what's got to happen is demand in those countries for energy has to be capped if it's not if it's not capped all that happens is someone at some other company is going to supply what those consumers and those economies want and all you're doing is penalizing american corporations for no climate gain at all i mean this this movement has been just unbelievably successful the esg movement in terms of affecting corporations what what would you advise like today's public corporations who see some of the problems with the net zero targets what would you advise them to do i think the first thing they should do is be very clear what the cost is to their business, to their employers, and to their stockholders. They should just tell people, this is, yeah, you want us to do this, but this will be the cost. We anticipate this will be the cost. Instead of what they kind of do is say, uh, yeah, we, we, we agree with these targets and uh, humming and whoring and sort of going along with them. I think they should be very, very clear what the costs of these are to to their to their employees and to their stockholders 
what do you expect to be the reality of if you look over the next 30 years, like let's say everyone tries their hardest. I mean, what do you expect to be the reality of net zero? Because I certainly don't think it's going to be achieving net zero in the world. Like what, what, what well, do you think going to happen? I think what will happen is actually you, you, you wrote a brilliant article on this with respect to Apple and renewable energy certificates, because that's the bit that kind of people forget when they talk about net zero, is they think, oh, well, these companies are actually going to achieve net zero. What actually will happen is a huge, great fake market in carbon credits and offsets and so forth. That is really what will happen, because for a lot of processes, you can't decarbonize. So it will just it will create this completely phony market in just as with renewable energy certificates a completely phony market to, to so that people can that companies can say we're we're net zero we're not harming the and, and it's just it's just be shelling out it's like the toll for the troll isn't it that's that's what will happen and it's it's not going to make it just means that it's like a tax on it on, on industrial activity and it's going to enrich some people some people are going to make an absolute ton of money out of that but the rest of the world is going to be poorer for it. I mean, one thing I think will happen if you look at the government and the corporate policies is just certain people will engage in this unilateral self-sacrifice. And then at a certain point, it'll just be too costly. And then they'll stop. I mean, particularly if you look at, maybe we could talk about China for a few minutes. You just wrote a really great article about China summarizing a different paper, uh, for, I think from Patricia Adams from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Like, what do you expect China's trajectory to be over the, the coming decades? Because people have the idea, oh, they're out competing us with wind turbines and solar panels. China is a massively, um, it's a massively, it's a hydrocarbon fueled economy. And you have to ask, are they, is the, is the Chinese Communist Party going to put at risk the growth of the Chinese economy to save the, save the planet? And the obvious, you know, the answer is no. The other thing to bear in mind is that the CCP have a target for the 100th anniversary of its seizure of power in 1949. So in 2049, it wants to be the world's dominant um, economy. So if you work back from that, what, what would you do if you were going to script world dominance for, the, for China in, in 2049? What would you script? Well, you'd script something very much like net zero for the rest of the world, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, there are two you know, ways you know, to compete. You can yeah, yeah, elevate you just, yourself you can, and destroy others. Yeah, and also, and at the same time, make energy cheaper for your own economy. Because as demand, as demand for coal and natural gas goes down elsewhere, it makes it cheaper for you. That's, so, that's what will. So I just talk for a second about because people might think it's conspiracy theory, but there there's reason to believe that they're deliberately encouraging others to adopt decarbonization policies, right? Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that they are the world's largest manufacturer of solar panels. Um, they've also got a big uh, position in, in, in wind turbines. So I think it, you know, it, it's all consistent with uh, the Chinese Communist Party seeing this as a, made, uh, as a huge strategic opportunity to both keep their economy powering along and in relative terms, just to be the biggest economy in the world by by mid-century and this just uh, has all oh sorry go ahead well i think the the other thing that i haven't mentioned is just their biggest rival in the region is india the other billion uh 
billion people population uh, country and net zero completely sinks sinks India because unlike China India has hardly carbonized what India needs to do really really badly is to go full throttle on fossil fuels and and this and net zero denies them denies India what China has gained so that's another obvious win for China I mean, if you look historically, we have we look in the past and we see situations like Neville Chamberlain and we think, oh, the people back then were such suckers or how could they believe this? And that's what I feel about today's decarbonization movement from a security standpoint. Like, oh, it's so clear that this is a stupid idea in terms of forcing people to use these uneconomic technologies that make energy unaffordable and unreliable wherever they're used. And like clearly of China, and I would also say Russia, like they're they are not they don't want us to all mutually succeed at least a lot of the leaders don't and so it's just this clear strategy yeah if you if you de-energize your competitors with these terrible ideas and terrible policies and then you energize yourself it's this it's this huge thing and and we there is this useful idiot thing going on where it's just like we seem to be playing into their hands and even just i think one point you made in your article or if you didn't it's it's a good point anyway it's just what is the level of economic dependence on China for most of the solar and wind economy and battery economy in terms of the raw materials and in terms of the processing facilities? It, it puts any former Mideast dependence on oil to shame, right? That's true. And, but, and the other thing is, when you think, as you mentioned Mideast oil, since the Nixon presidency, the aim of every successive administration has been energy independence. And lo and behold, thanks to fracking, the US has achieved it, and now it's going to throw it away. It's absolutely extraordinary. I think the other effect is it's almost like, I think the most insidious thing in terms of national security, the effect on national security, is if you believe climate change is an existential threat, you no longer see China for example, as a threat to your national security. You actually see China as a necessary partner to save the world from the catastrophe of climate change. In other words, it kind of paralyzes um, the national security elites to think about what the real threats are to American and the American security and the security of the West. And, and that's incredibly damaging. I think that's going to be one of the big big issues for the Biden administration. I mean, you've got John Kerry who thinks that climate change science is as simple as an apple falling off a tree and that, um, that we're facing a climate catastrophe. And if you think that, well, you can kiss goodbye to Taiwan, for example, you're, you're basically giving China um, a blank check in, in, in that part of the world. And that, that's the real national security threat. Yeah, and I would just even go beyond that. If you look at just, I mean, this kind of myopia that you have when you're fixated on one issue. So policy-wise, it's going to affect you not looking at other threats, but it's not just foreign policy threats. I mean, even domestic policy, who was thinking about pandemics? I remember when I was working on a version of my book that's going to come out next year, later this year. And uh, I like, I didn't have I had antibiotic resistance as something on my mind that, oh, this is something much more serious than you know, mild climate impact, but you, you can only, if you're obsessed with one thing, you can't focus on other things. So there's the political level, just being unprepared for things like pandemics. But then if you look at the business level, and I think you make this point in your, your piece that 
do we really want our corporations just monomaniacally focused on this one thing? And this one thing is basically how not to emit CO2. It's not a new creative purpose. It's not newer and better ways of producing energy. It's just trying to do the exact same thing or a less or, or even a worse version of the exact same thing without emitting CO2. So we have a whole corporate world now that's not focused, or that's less focused on real innovation. And instead they're focused on meeting this religious target uh, of net zero, that has huge negative consequences for innovation going forward. Uh, Alex, I completely agree with you. And one of the points I try to try and make is that ESG basically turns corporations into arms of government. They are being tasked to deliver public policy goals. And in my view, you need a complete, you need a, a separation of functions between government on the one side and the, the role of governments to regulate and to achieve public policy goals and the role of corporations and the role of corporations is to innovate to compete successfully in a dynamic marketplace to keep their eye on the market and if you turn companies into box ticking public sector bureaucracies the the, the motive force the, the the kind of energy and dynamism of capitalism will just be drained away and we'll just have you know kind of flat growth very little innovation and the whole thing will sort of will stagnate a big 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 threat in my mind yeah I mean, imagine amazon at the beginning being obsessed with oh we can't emit any co2 like what well, that would have just done nothing yeah. uh, that's right uh all right rupert well thanks so much for coming on where can people learn more about your work and follow your work that's a good question i'm actually i'm um, a senior fellow at the royal clear Foundation, so I write regularly on 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 Real Clear Energy, so that all my stuff is on the on the Real Clear Energy pages. Um, and the, the the article you mentioned um, on China, for example, I think that went up just before Christmas, and it, and it's very easy very easy to find. And then uh, Twitter, you're Rupert Darwall, right? That's correct. Yeah. Any final if we're, messages? If, we, if we're allowed to, if we're allowed to remain on Twitter, Alex. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a whole other discussion. Uh, any final messages for the audience? Yeah, I think the most important thing in this debate is to have a debate and to keep talking and to keep thinking and not be, not be intimidated or downcast by, you know, we're going to have a great big wave of, with the incoming Biden administration of climate uh, climate hysteria and so forth and just to keep talking and keep reading and and keep keep the messages coming out and keep a clear clear thinking about it all right sounds good thanks so much rupert my pleasure thanks again to rupert darwall for joining me on the show i want to harp on one point that i probably harped on a little bit during the interview as well but just how bad and irrational the UN IPCC is, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, this is a tricky point for the following reason. It's true that the IPCC reports themselves, if you compare them to the summaries for policymakers, are much better. So they're much better than the summaries for policymakers. And there's probably some good science in the reports. And some of it is is you know, presented in a way that that conveys a genuine interest in science. But what is really emerging for me, the more I read of these and the more I really read them from the perspective of are they giving us the full context, 
is they are just systematically not giving us the full context. They do not look at the world. I mean, and it's, it's at least two things. They do not look at the world from a human flourishing perspective. They really look at it from a, a minimal impact or unimpacted nature perspective. And so that's one. So it's the whole moral framework that's shaping it is the idea that we should be optimizing for having as little impact on the planet, including the global climate system as possible. So it's that corrupt uh, idea. And then related in terms of methodology, they're not looking at the benefits and the side effects for human flourishing at all carefully. They're ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. And that's manifested by ignoring the costs of rapidly eliminating fossil fuels. And so this is just as valid as a document that looked at COVID-19 vaccines and only looked at the potential side effects and not the potential benefits, or that said, we're gonna outlaw all vaccination. And they did not look at what that would do negatively. So if, if you know that somebody has a bad methodology, and then on top of that and related to that, they have the wrong standard, then everything they say is going to be distorted. I just want to really stress that the leading body that we are relying upon and that our, our, all of our different knowledge institutions are relying upon is bankrupt in terms of its basic methodology. So we can still point out that, yeah, even this entity, when it's when it, on specific issues in isolation, is acknowledging that you know, climate change is not the end of the world. And that, that can be valid to point out. And I like pointing that out. But I just want to really make clear that the UN IPCC has very bad methodology, and they are not thinking of this issue from remotely a pro-human perspective, both from the perspective of standard and from the related perspective of method. I think the more we are aware of that, the more we can resist falling prey toward these kinds of listen to the scientists type things. Because no, this, this is not a scientific thing. It's not a rational thing. It's not a pro-human thing. It's a very religious thing. And scientists are sometimes unwittingly, sometimes deliberately being co-opted into this. But nevertheless, this is really the religion of minimize human impact on the planet. This is not trying to maximize human flourishing and then integrating our impacts on climate into that analysis. So just want to properly bash the UN. And I mean, the UN in general deserves a lot of bashing, but the IPCC in particular is just, it is a bankrupt institution in terms of its basic conception and methodology. For, for the reasons that I gave and that I talked about on this show. All right, hope you find that helpful. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Make sure you're on my mailing list, which you can get on at alexepsteinlist.com. If you want to support our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, specifically our research and development and our promotional efforts, you can become an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. We have one of our bi-monthly accelerator calls this Sunday. I think it's the 17th. So if you're an accelerator at any amount and you have been one over the last year, you're welcome to attend. I think that'll be a really interesting call. All right. That is it for this week. Next week, I'll be back with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.